Hello and welcome to the July 2021 edition of Aon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I'm recording this the day after England beat Germany in the Euros, so you may find a few football references creeping into this month's episode. Later on, I'll be talking to Gareth Marsh and Pranesh Garthiram about DC consolidation. But first, let's look at this month's pensions news. We're going to start with the topic that everyone loves, which is pensions tax. This month was very much a game of two halves on this subject, so I'll start at the beginning. Back in March, just before the budget, the Treasury Committee published a report on tax after coronavirus. This was the result of a wide-ranging inquiry into the role taxation should play in dealing with the increased public debt resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the recommendations in this report was that the Chancellor should urgently reform the entire approach to pensions tax relief. The Treasury Committee published the government's response to their report on the 2nd of June. The main comment on pensions was that, while all tax reliefs are kept under review, more radical changes to pensions tax relief would require careful consideration. On the face of it, that seemed to indicate that significant changes weren't on the cards, at least for a while. But, less than three weeks later, we had a front page story in The Telegraph saying the Treasury's planning significant pensions tax changes in this year's autumn statement. This report suggested options being considered include a single flat rate of tax relief for member contributions, reforms to the taxation of employer contributions, and a further reduction in the lifetime allowance. Now, a press report isn't quite the same as an official government statement, but it does seem the government's sending out some rather mixed messages on this topic. Hopefully, the next time we hear something on this, it will provide some clarity rather than just muddying the waters further. The pensions regulators published a new Equality, Diversity and Inclusion strategy. This was developed in discussions with the pensions industry, and it sets out a roadmap to ensure that equality, diversity and inclusion are at the heart of TPR's work as a regulatory body. TPR now has new goals which will ensure it meets the aims of the strategy, which are to be a fair, diverse and inclusive employer, to build a collective understanding of why pensions inequalities occur and work in partnership with others seeking to reduce them, and to promote higher standards of equality, diversity and inclusion among TPR's regulated community. The Pensions Policy Institute has published a new report called What is an Adequate Retirement Income? This report, sponsored by the Centre for Aging Better, examines the issues underlying debates around adequacy and the fundamental questions of what adequacy is, how it should be defined and who's responsible for providing it. Some of the stats make for quite interesting reading, so the report warns that the UK is currently on course for a quarter of people who are approaching retirement being unlikely to receive even a minimum income and nearly half failing to meet a personally acceptable level of income in retirement. Fewer than one in 10 can expect to live a comfortable life in retirement. Now in a link to the previous news story, there are also warnings here that women, people from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups, carers, disabled people and the self-employed are all more likely to be in the groups not meeting adequacy levels throughout retirement. The report also highlights the likelihood that things will just get worse as the provision of private sector DB schemes continues to decline. You can download a copy of the full report from the PPI's website, but if you're using Google, I'd suggest typing in Pensions Policy Institute in full, otherwise you'll just end up with a load of stuff about payment protection insurance and proton pump inhibitors, apparently. If you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by all the consultations we've had recently, it seems you're not alone. Last month, the SPP and the PMI both publicly criticised TPR's consultation on the new single code of practice, 
We talked about the new single code in our interview back in April, and we highlighted that it was more than just a simple consolidation of the existing codes. The SPP questioned whether the 10-week timescale really gave the industry enough time to review and comment on the full draft, and the PMI criticised both the timescale and the lack of a clear distinction between new requirements and those that were just carried over from the existing guidance. This month, they've both commented further on the issue of consultation fatigue, warning that the deluge of consultations, often with very short windows for responses, could affect the industry's ability to submit proper responses. Together with PASA, they're calling for longer response times and a more joined-up approach by government departments and regulators. Whether this has any impact on how future consultations are handled remains to be seen, but we'll keep you updated on any further developments. And finally, Aon's 2021 UK DB Pension Risk Survey is now open for responses. This survey is market-leading in its coverage of the asset, liability and other risks inherent in DB schemes. Now, I do appreciate the irony of asking you to fill in a survey straight after a new story on how busy the industry is, but there is something in it for you. All participants will receive a free copy of our report on the findings of the survey so they can benchmark their own risk practices against the market, and we're also donating £5 to the Aon Charitable Foundation for every completed survey. If you'd like to take part, you can find a link in the show notes. But the survey is closing on the 16th of July, and I don't think we'll be going into extra time, so don't leave it too long. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. DC consolidation has been in the news again this month, but rather than trying to explain what's going on, I thought it would be better to bring in a couple of guys who actually know what they're talking about. Joining me for today's unusually early recording session are Gareth Marsh, no relation, and Pranesh Garthiram, who are both from our DC team. I guess the first thing to do is explain why we're talking about this now, and by that I mean this month rather than at 9am. Gareth, can you just give us a quick rundown on what's put DC consolidation in the spotlight? Certainly will, Ricky. Thank you. Probably just start off by saying that DC consolidation isn't really a new thing. I mean, every day we see businesses restructuring, we see mergers, we see acquisitions, and many of these lead to some sort of harmonisation of pensions, even if it's only for future provision. But if we think about the past few years and even just look at the master trust market in DC, we've seen since the authorisation regime took hold, more huge consolidation from well over 100 schemes now down to less than 40. But refreshingly, The driver for these new regulations and the reason for the current focus is the members of DC schemes. Now, Pranish will cover the details of the regulation shortly, but the idea is that members can get better value and access more of what DC pensions can offer when they're in a large arrangement than they can when they're in a small one. So what do I mean by this? Well, think of a tiny scheme with a handful of members in it. It won't have much commercial clout in the market, providers won't be falling over themselves to offer competitive terms, meaning that members will be paying a lot in charges. They might already be quite close to the charge cap. We also know how quickly DC investments and DC technology is developing. So what happens when the next enhancement comes along? Well, ultimately, the costs are met by charges on members' funds. So if you're already up against the charge cap, your hands are tied. And even if there is some scope within the cap, well, spreading the cost over such a small membership is just not viable. So either way, your members are going to miss out. By contrast, the mega schemes do have the economies of scale. They've got the leverage to drive down prices. They've got hundreds of thousands of members over which to spread the cost of the next great idea. The final thing to mention is that consolidation also has a nice happy consequence for the government. 
we've got a huge and ever-growing number amount of money tied up across DC pension funds in the UK. Funds that could make a real difference on things like investing sustainably, net zero targets and climate change. If these funds are pooled across a smaller number of mega schemes, then they really unlock the potential to give DC savers the ability to invest in illiquid assets, infrastructure projects and other areas which could really support the government and the country's economic recovery. So, um, Pranesh, what does this all mean in practice for those involved in running DC schemes? Well, Ricky, let's maybe start with the smaller schemes, as this is where there are more immediate changes in government regulations and expectations. So smaller schemes are actually considered to be those schemes with assets of less than £100 million and that have been around for at least three years. And if the scheme is a hybrid scheme, so it has defined benefit and defined contribution benefits, then the £100 million actually applies in relation to the total assets of the scheme and not just the DC assets. So we've actually had new regulations that have just been introduced and that take effect from the first scheme year following the end of this year. And these require that these smaller schemes must assess the value they provide for members using a prescribed value for member assessment framework. Now, value for member assessment in itself is not new to the DC trustee world. It's actually been around for a few years now. But the framework to determine value for members has always been left to trustee boards to determine. However, this has now changed with the new regulations and the prescribed basis will have to be used for these smaller schemes. Now under the prescribed basis, there are seven factors that schemes will need to be assessed on. And these cover the usual areas like scheme governance, administration and investments. However, there are some factors that are now included that may not have featured in assessments before. An example of this is an explicit assessment of trustee knowledge and understanding, or how conflicts of interest are managed by the scheme. But for us, the biggest change we think is in relation to the assessment of member-borne costs and charges and the net investment return reporting. So these are the costs and charges that members pay in relation or in terms of investing in the scheme. And the net return or net returns that we're calculating or referring to are actually the returns that members get net of all of the costs and charges that they pay. And these schemes will now need to not just disclose this information, but they will also need to compare the costs and charges and returns against three large schemes as well. Now, generally speaking, as Gareth alluded to as well, this is an area that we expect will be especially challenging for small schemes to demonstrate value relative to large schemes, as we would expect large schemes to be able to negotiate lower charges which should also lead to better net returns as well. Now, any scheme not comparing favorably will be required to wind up if they cannot show TPR that they can improve value for members. So we really are expecting this to drive consolidation at the smaller end of the market. And that would be whether or not these schemes are actually able to deliver value for members or not. And if that covers schemes with assets of less than 100 million, what happens for, for larger schemes? Are they required to do anything at this stage? 
Well, to, to start with, larger schemes can actually choose to voluntarily adopt the prescribed assessment basis. However, there is no requirement for them to do so. But beyond that, alongside the introduction of the prescribed basis, the government has also released a call for evidence, which looks at schemes with assets of between 100 million and 5 billion pounds. And their aim is to actually gather evidence on the barriers and opportunities for greater consolidation of schemes of these sizes. At this stage, government is really only looking for views on how to incentivize consolidation for these schemes rather than regulating for it. For understanding what barriers exist and how significant they are and how the risks of consolidation can be mitigated. They're also wanting to understand how important it is or consolidation is to driving better member outcomes in schemes of this size. So although no specific policy proposals have been made at this stage, we do expect that the focus on improving value for members will continue. So there will well be or there could well be further expectations in relation to providing and assessing value for these large schemes as well at some point in the future. As a starting point, government has indicated that the 100 million pound threshold for smaller schemes is also not cast in stone. This level will be under regular review. So we do expect that as the consolidation of smaller schemes progresses, this 100 million pound level could well increase, capturing some of the current larger schemes. So it's small, or at least small-ish schemes first, and then the big ones later on. And that, is that the right way around? Because normally, when we're talking about new requirements, they start with the bigger schemes and work their way down. Yeah, you're right there, Ricky. I mean, it will be the largest schemes that start to move the dial on some of the things I mentioned earlier, things like economic recovery, sustainability, and so on. But But we do need to remember that value for members is the main aim here and it's those in the smallest schemes who are facing the greatest risks if we consolidate those big schemes first we could get into a situation where providers just shut up shop i mean if you're a commercial dc master trust and you're already holding most of the available assets in the market is there any real incentive for you taking on that tiny amount more and the hassle that goes along with it probably not so i think if the consolidation drive isn't done in an orderly fashion from the smallest working up to the biggest, we really do risk closing the door on those smaller schemes and locking into some poor outcomes for those members in them. The time will come for bigger schemes, as Pranesh said, and while we think there'll still be some benefits to consolidation, there's slightly less urgency here on member outcomes because the current setup should be offering some value already. And just to wrap up, what would you both say schemes should be doing right now? Well, if we want to start with the small schemes again, I think with the additional requirements in terms of the prescribed value for member basis, we think that smaller schemes should start preparing for the assessment as soon as possible. First, in relation to speaking to their advisors and providers to ensure that the additional data they need for the scheme will be available when they require it, particularly the new requirement for disclosing net investment returns for their current funds. And then we spoke earlier about smaller schemes also needing to compare themselves to at least three large schemes. So trustees will also need to carefully consider and decide on the three comparator schemes that they want to use, perhaps being very clear on the criteria they would like to adopt 
to determine these comparator schemes. And the requirement is that at least one of these comparator schemes chosen must have had discussions with the smaller scheme over a potential transfer. And this will also need to happen before the value assessment is completed. So trustees will also need to make sure that they have the comparator information, so the costs and charges and net return information for the comparator schemes as well. And then, as always, with the introduction of new requirements, there could well be teething problems. So delays in terms of working through the requirements and collecting all of the additional information needed and taking action where needed. So the sooner trustees start considering these new requirements, the better prepared they will be to meet them. I completely agree, Pranish. And I think on, on the larger schemes, whilst there's nothing set in stone just yet, we've got the call for evidence out there. I think for those in the 100 to 200 million bracket, so just above the, the small scheme definition thresholds, I'd say watch very closely what's coming for those smaller schemes from October this year. Think about the requirements. Start to think about the value being offered in your scheme, perhaps the value being offered in other comparable schemes and those potential comparator large schemes you might be looking at in due course and the potential consolidation options you have available. Doubtless you'll be next in the pensions regulators crosshairs and we'd expect a very similar compliance process to follow for you. Great. Well, thanks very much to both of you for your time today and sorry about the early start. Thanks, Reggie. No problem. Thanks, Reggie. Now, here's a rare treat, a little bit of bonus post-interview news for you. Alongside the new regulations we talked about in the interview, the government also published their response to another consultation from earlier this year on incorporating performance fees within the DC charge cap. The government's confirmed that it will be moving forward with its proposal to allow schemes to smooth performance fees over a five-year period, so they've published new draft regulations as well as updated guidance for trustees. Subject to parliamentary approval, the new regulations should come into force from the 1st of October. Right, that's all for today, so thanks for listening, and thanks again to my guests, Pranesh Garthiram and Gareth Marsh. I'm off to have some breakfast and start mentally preparing myself for the inevitable letdown of a quarter-final defeat by Ukraine, but I'll be back next month for our 30th episode. Don't get too excited. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.